0: Nordic countries are constantly praised for their forward-thinking policies and their inventive ways of dealing with economic issues. Sweden, for example, has one of the highest per capita incomes in the world, a high quality of life score, a government that protects civil liberties, a high degree of equality between the genders, and economic competitiveness. In short, Sweden today sounds like an amazing place to live. But it was definitely not always like this. For a time, Sweden, like many other countries, was extremely poor and underpopulated. Today I'll be discussing one of the founding fathers of Nordic liberalism, the great Anders Janus from the 18th century. A person who helped push Sweden towards liberal values through his passionate arguments for economic freedom, all sexist society, and his crusade against entrenched privileges unevenly distributed by the state. Anders Janus was born February 26, 1729, in an area now part of Finland, but then part of Sweden, called Sotkamo, where his father Jacob Janus was a Lutheran chaplain. He was the second of eight children, and five years after his birth, the Giudanius family moved to Kusumo in 1734, where his father took a position as a rector for a small parish located in the harsh environment in what is today northern Finland. Despite his father's new parish covering a colossal amount of ground, it was only home to about 900 souls. As Anders grew up, he witnessed the poverty and hardship of hard-working farmers amongst whom he lived. He sympathised with their plight, but did not understand why they were poor or how their suffering could be alleviated. Anders' father was an excellent role model who diligently educated Anders and his older brother Samuel at home. Later in life, Anders would write that all he had achieved was owed to God and his father's instruction. Unlike many teachers at the time, Anders' father saw no point in forcing children to memorize large tracts of text. Instead, he wanted to develop in his children what we now call critical thinking, the ability to think clearly and rationally while seeing the connection of ideas. After being homeschooled by his father, Anders and his brother attended two different grammar schools and eventually began academic studies together at the Royal Academy in Turku, finally moving to Uppsala University later on. At Turku, Anders studied philosophy and theology, while at Uppsala he studied philosophy and theology, but also mathematics, astronomy, Greek and mechanics. He would later write a dissertation in 1753 on American birch bark canoes, his idea being that this could hopefully be a benefit to the rural parishioners among whom he grew up. This slightly odd dissertation earned him the nickname Birchbark Andy among his fellow students. But a constant theme of Anders' life was a dedication to improving existing methods to usher material and moral progress. And that's what his dissertation was all about, even if it is a little odd. Anders was greatly influenced by his professor, Henrik Hassel, who introduced Anders to scientific method of thought. Hassel believed that knowledge is based on experience gained through the senses and the application of reason and saw no purpose in metaphysical speculations, common to more scholastic philosophers. Akin to the English philosopher and scientist Francis Bacon, Hassel believed that the purpose of knowledge was to improve human affairs, an idea that deeply affected Anders. After finishing his studies, Anders decided that, instead of following in his brother's footsteps in an academic career, he would follow in his father's, becoming an ordained chaplain in 1754. His new parish of Avatelli was only 20 kilometres away from his father's parish, Kokala. In his old age, Anders' father had begun to become hard of hearing, and Anders did his best to support and care for his father whilst performing his relentless task of being a chaplain, a position notable for its lack of glory in the church. Inspired by his father's example, Anders dedicated himself to the 570 parishioners of Avatelli, nearly all of whom were farmers. By 1755 Anders married Bretta Mangdela Melberg, the daughter of a merchant. Living off a meagre stipend, Anders and his wife diligently worked to bolster their income by growing herbs and vegetables, rearing cattle, and selling tobacco. Quite the industrious couple. During this period, Anders wrote his first ever pieces of published writing, two pamphlets, one on farming moss-grown fields, and another on improving marshes. While this is not exactly the most exhilarating topic, both were awarded medals from the Royal Academy of Science, proving both his intellect and capacity. Ever the man of science, he also taught himself the basics of practising medicine, And for a time, he was known as a reliable yet unlicensed medical practitioner. He inoculated many parishioners' children against smallpox, and even successfully performed a few operations. Always eager to record his results, Anders published a report on his experience inoculating children against smallpox and his operations on eyes. On top of all of these practical considerations, Anders was by all accounts an excellent priest. His sermons became quite popular, with people actually travelling from outside of the parish to hear him preach dedicated people's souls and their spiritual welfare, Anders even invited people to his own home to give them advice. In short, Anders became a pillar of the community, and for 17 years, he diligently served to the best of his abilities as parish. Anders lived a diligent and virtuous life, completely separate from politics, but this was all to change. By 1756, he had begun to read political pamphlets, especially ones on the topics of censorship, bureaucracy, and unfair privileges granted to elites. In 1761 and 1762, Anders wrote his first ever political pamphlets, but he didn't publish them. He was possibly nervous about their likely reception. Both Anders and his father's parishes were part of a province called Australopithania, and since 1617, a sailing code had greatly restricted people's rights of Australopithania, but only allowing two cities to export goods, Stockholm and Turku. This is a completely unfair system that gave places like Stockholm a monopoly on export and import products while depriving others of making a living trading. Ostrobothenians had tried numerous times to petition the Swedish government but to no avail, and they were sick of it. By 1763, Anders was asked to produce a written argument for why Ostrobothenian restrictions should be lifted. Originally, Anders intended his arguments to be anonymous and for another, present his writing. However, when no one was willing to deliver a speech, he stepped up to the plate and gave a rousing speech that made a lasting impression on observers. He argued that there should be no special privileges given to anyone to the detriment of others. Free trade was an egalitarian policy that would benefit the industrious, not the idle. Quickly following this meeting, there was an essay competition announced by the Royal Academy of Science on the question of why so many Swedes were emigrating and how to stop this phenomenon. The stock answer as to why so many Swedes emigrated was that they were lazy and wanted an easy life abroad but Anders did not subscribe to this thinking at all. He explained that people left Sweden due to a lack of opportunity, and this lack of opportunity was not due to laziness, but the fault of the law and the state. He explained that there were too many regulations, restrictions, and taxes that curtailed people from generating a profitable livelihood. Because of the oppressive system of restrictions, Swedes left their home to pursue making living abroad, where they worked unhampered by excessive laws. People are naturally productive, and the solution to most problems was not to constrain people, but instead to allow them to be free and unleash their abilities. What Anders wanted to articulate was that people were willing to leave their home, travel to a foreign land where they didn't know the language or the customs, all to improve their lives. The reality is the Swedish are not lazy, they're actually extremely diligent and industrious and dedicated. It's not the regular person's fault, it's actually the state's fault. It restricts their talents by erecting barriers to entry to trades and businesses and excessive taxing of any profits that they end up securing, despite all the hurdles in their way. Anders concluded that a fatherland without freedom and livelihood is a big word that signifies very little. But Anders' essay was far, far too radical. It roundly condemned the Swedish government for suppressing the ability of people to bear their lives through an over-restrictive state that enriched few at the expense of many. And because of his radicalness, Anders' essay didn't even receive an honourable mention. But Anders was right. By the 1760s, the economic situation had become unbearable in Sweden, and Parliament was forced to convene in 1764. Sweden in the past had been a major power, but had lost many of its territories in wars against Russia, Poland and Denmark by 1721 sweden was a shell of its former self and no longer a great power of the baltic world the swedish government had a parliament which is a mixture of four states the nobility the clergy the burghers, and the peasants in parliament there were two main parties the hats and the caps the hats were composed mainly of aristocrats who wanted to restore what they believed was sweden's glory days make sweden great again while the caps were tired of pointless wars and wanted sweden to stay out of foreign wars and focus on economic development Thankfully, the CAP party won the elections and Anders became a representative for Ostrobothania. Anders never really intended to run for parliament, but he became so popular for his arguments in favour of free trade as opposition to entrenched privileges, which were of extreme importance to the people of Ostrobothania. So, he was elected. Living in a quiet, yet harsh rural setting all his life, the hustle and bustle of Stockholm must have been both a huge shock and a rush for Anders. He was now able to converse with the brightest of the country and build up a network of contacts. But Anders was an outsider in Stockholm. He came from quite a humble rank of the clergy and would have been considered a bumpkin by many of his peers who had not yet experienced his intellect. This was by far the busiest Anders had ever been. Working in parliament all day, then he would stay up all night to write and research. Arriving in Stockholm, Anders hit the ground running, publishing two pamphlets he had already written, the most important being about trading rights to the city of austro Yet again, Anders argued in favour of a free market, with his pamphlet being distributed to all sitting members of parliament for free. In 1765, he published yet another pamphlet entitled The Source of Our Country's Weakness. Now a member of parliament, Anders used a position to access all kinds of data and statistics of Sweden's economy. And he found that the shipping ordinance passed in 1724 and 1726 were the things that crippled Sweden's economy, despite being considered a bulwark of it. These ordinances mandated that imports must be transported only by Swedish ships, and that ships from other countries could not transport goods between Swedish ports. Wholesale dealers in cities like Stockholm benefited enormously from these ordinances, giving them a monopoly, at the expense of the rest of the Swedish economy, which bore the shipping costs. The pamphlet was a massive hit, selling out in a couple of weeks. Later in the same year, Anders published another pamphlet, one that went beyond addressing particular policy concerns in favour of a broader, more philosophical view. In his now most famous pamphlet, known as The National Gain, Anders attacked the accepted wisdom of mercantilism. The idea that the state ought to achieve a balance of trade, favouring exports over imports, as a national priority, this is to be achieved by the state stringently regulating commerce through tariffs, subsidies, and particular industries. Andrews argued that the state ought not to regulate commerce. When the free market is left to its own devices, the price mechanism naturally regulates the economy. Andrews opens the national game by saying, "Our wants are various, and nobody's ever been found to be acquired even the of without aid of other people." and there is scarcely any nation that has not stood in the need of others, and that the almighty God himself has made our race such that we should help one another. According to Anders, raising barriers against trade was actually against God's design for humans as sociable creatures that are interdependent and mutually rely on one another. All humans are naturally self-interested beings. Anders explains that every man seeks his own gain. This inclination is so natural and necessary that all communities in the world are founded upon it therefore, people move into professions where they can earn the most money. The more profitable profession is, the more people who will enter it, thus creating competition and driving down costs, ensuring a monopoly does not form. Echoing Adam Smith's famous invisible hand, Anders writes that each individual will of his own accord gravitate towards the locality and enterprise will most effectively increase the national profit, provided that the laws do not prevent him from doing so. Influenced by the previously mentioned Henrik Hassel while studying at university, he believed complete knowledge of human affairs was reserved for God only. Human knowledge is imperfect and incomplete. The best way to regulate the economy is to leave it free, to react and regulate the vast amount of information conveyed through changing prices and preferences that no one person or group of people could ever possibly comprehend in their totality. The National Gain is a short essay, but it's packed with foreshadowing of future economic ideas. Similar to Frederick Hayek, Anders viewed the economy as a process as opposed to a given state of affairs. Like James Buchanan, the founder of public choice theory, he questioned the supposed selflessness of politicians and public servants. And like Adam Smith, who wrote his seminal Wealth of Nations, he believed self-interested individuals unintentionally improve one another's material prosperity through commerce. But Anders' achievements were not solely relegated to political pamphleteering, Not by a long shot. While in Parliament, he argued for repealing restrictions on trade, and his pamphlets were instrumental in Parliament passing laws allowing cities to trade in foreign harbours. He even played a role in passing laws which implemented stricter controls on the government budget. But the crowning jewel of Anders' time in Parliament was defense defensive freedom of speech, which also resulted in the world's first Freedom of Information Act, allowing a degree of transparency of government affairs unheard of in the 18th century. From 1760 to 1762, Parliament debated the issue of free speech, but no real legal action had been taken. Through reading other liberal writers, Anders had come to the conclusion that free speech was the most precious possession of a free country. He would later write that all the issues discussed in Parliament he had dedicated the greatest efforts towards defending free speech. As mentioned before, Anders believed humans by nature could never achieve perfect knowledge like God. Instead, humans need to rely on discussion and mutual exchange of ideas to reach enlightenment. And free speech was integral to moral progress, because ideas had to withstand what he called the competition of pens. Further, he claimed no fortress can be praised more than when it has endured the hardest sieges. If ideas can't withstand criticism, they ought to be discarded. Through the force of her arguments, yet again, Adams was the foremost proponent of an ordinance passed in 1766, which abolished censorship, secured freedom of the press, and secured citizens' the right to access government documents to guarantee transparency. But despite all of his success, Anders' 18-month stint in Parliament was cut short when he published a pamphlet that criticised his own party, the Caps' monetary policy. He was probably also expelled because his radicalism had begun to scare the party's more elite members. He left Stockholm a few weeks later, but yet again he was elected to Parliament in 1769, though his election was invalidated due to legal technicality. Returning to his parish, Anders dedicated himself to the pastoral care of his parishioners, which after a promotion to rector, covered the entire province while also balancing and writing a steady stream of political pamphlets. In 1772, the year after Gustav III had been crowned king, he successfully executed a coup, concluding the supremacy of parliament and concentrating power back in the hands of the monarch. But thankfully Gustav was of a reforming mind. Anders wrote several pamphlets throughout the 1770s to convince the newly crowned monarch of the benefits of progressive and humane policies that Anders believed Sweden should follow. In 1775, the Royal Academy of Gothenburg announced an essay competition on the question whether rural trade was generally useful or harmful to a country. And as always, Anders wrote an essay advocating people's rights to dispose of the labour however they saw fit and trade with whoever they wished. Anders explained that generally most of the reasons produced against rural trade were merely pretexts for merchants to protect their established privileges. Later that year, he had published yet again another bleeding heart pamphlet entitled Thoughts Concerning the Natural Rights of Masters and Servants. In 1739, it was decreed that servants would have a fixed annual wage and be allocated to employees at random. This infuriated Anders, who argued servants had a right to dispose of their services to whomever they wished and were entitled to negotiate with willing buyers instead of being forced to sell their services at a fixed price over which they had zero control. Anders argued, just like everyone else, servants had the same rights that other men possess. By 1778, Anders was yet again elected to parliament, albeit quite a neuter one compared to its glory days, with the king now watching over their affairs. But in yet another display of his commitment to liberal principles, despite fears of being attacked by his fellow clergy members and society at large, Anders came out in favour of religious liberty for all faiths, including Catholics and Jewish people, who at the time were often viewed with great suspicion. Anders dreamed of a world where Sweden was a place of refuge to all those unfortunates who bar or may in the future be deprived of sanctuary in their native countries, and therefore yearn to move somewhere else in search of protection from violence and oppression. Converting people by force does not make truly religious people, it just doesn't work. Anders argued that mildness, patience, enlightenment, and gentle instruction are the only means by which people who have gone astray may be truly converted. No one must be converted at gunpoint or through the arm of the law. All people have a right to live unmolested, regardless of their religious beliefs. And despite fierce opposition, he managed to convince the three other estates in Parliament to pass a Religious Toleration Act by 1781. King Gustav was especially impressed by Anders' bravery and vigorously articulating his liberal principles. Gustav even commented, I'm fairly audacious as well, but I would never have dared to do what Chidanius did. In 1792, Anders was elected a third time to the Parliament, a much weakened parliament that only met for a month a year. Unsurprisingly, not much was achieved compared to other stints in Parliament. This term was relatively lackluster. This be the last time Anders would directly take part in political affairs, and after a dangerous journey home through the icy Gulf of Bithynia, Anders returned to his parish and resumed his duties as diligently as ever. Anders kept writing his pamphlets, defending the rights of the poorest through economic freedom, but one of his most unique pieces of writing, in my opinion, is his essay entitled Proposals for the Improvement of Lapland. Lapland was for the most part a heavily forested area inhabited by hunters and nomads only. While slightly utopian in its overall tone and political feasibility, it gives a good idea of what Anders thought the ideal state ought to act. Land should be given to settlers who can do whatever they wish with it, and they should be able to engage other nations in commerce. All people would enjoy an equal set of rights with no special privileges afforded to any. The only interference from the state would be in Lapland's initial settlement, where the Swedish government would help provide a clergy and a judicial system. But, after this, Lapline was to be completely free of any state interference, with no regulations, restrictions on trade, or licensing requirements. We can see that the ideal state for Anders is one in which the minimal government presence can be felt, which only enforces the equal rights of all, and little else. In economic matters, people are to be at complete liberty as to how they earn their living, sell their goods, etc. Even as Anders entered his 70s, with the dawn of the 19th century, he still kept himself busy, writing sermons, political pamphlets, agricultural treatises, organising an orchestra and writing his own autobiography. After quite an eventful and full life dedicated to reform and progress, Anders passed away in February 1803. He had no children, but was survived by his wife, whom he was married for nearly 50 years to. Anders Chudanis today is recognised as one of the founding fathers of Nordic liberalism. As a reformer, his legacy is unparalleled. He played a crucial role in repealing restrictive economic policies, keeping the state accountable and forcing to be transparent, securing freedom of speech while also abolishing censorship and defending religious minorities' rights. But what Anders achieved in government was only the tip of the iceberg of what he wanted to see implemented. He firmly believed in the equality of all people as we have seen. He never stopped defending the rights of the least represented people in society and their freedom to take destiny into their own hands through thrift and hard work. Economic freedom for Anders was a God-given part of everyone's life and an intended part of the natural order. All that was required to usher in prosperity and harmony was merely to unleash the creative energies of all people and to drive towards progress. In many ways, Anders was a precursor to many modern economic ideas, but his cultural isolation in Sweden meant he was not really appreciated abroad until recently, thanks to translations of his work. Many scholars today refer to Anders as the Nordic version of Adam Smith, but I think this really undersells his unique qualities as a thinker wholly independent from Smith. In some ways, Anders attacked protectionist and of in a much more sustained, holistic way than Smith ever did. Overall, Anders Jordanus is a founding father of classical liberalism in the Nordic world, but his ideas are still just as forceful as they were nearly 300 years ago, and just as universal. What Anders wanted was a world in which all were afforded the same natural right to improve their lives how they saw fit, free from the paternalism and particularism of a regulatory state. Thanks Emil, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and if you did, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you may listen to podcasts. Visit the website www.libertarianism.org to find more podcasts like this one. I hope to see you next time.